For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Before we get going, I want to bring you a quick word from our sponsor, Mubi. If you've ever sat there and tried to pick a movie to watch on your TV from all of the millions of apps, you probably have had a terrible experience. That's because algorithms are very bad at picking movies for you. I'll tell you what's much better, a human curator. That's what Mubi has. They curate great films, classics, thought-provoking documentaries, groundbreaking masterpieces. Each day they introduced a new hand-picked film and you have one month to watch it. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash longform. That's mubi.com slash longform. Also presenting the show today, it's Rise and Grind, a new podcast from Damon John. You may know Damon John from hosting Shark Tank, a show I very much enjoy. But before that, he was a kid from Queens, sewing hats by hand, selling them on the street. He turned that business into FUBU, a multi-billion dollar fashion company, by out-hustling the competition every day. And in his new podcast, Rise and Grind, he talks to entrepreneurs like Gary Vaynerchuk, artists like Tyler the Creator, and gets them to tell the story of how they outworked their way to the top just like he did you can subscribe to damon john's new podcast rise and grind in apple Podcasts, stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts thank you very much to rise and grind here's our show hello and welcome to the long form podcast great show for you today hello hello hey aaron hello hosts hey you guys um talked to our former office mate Nathan Thornburg. Uh, Nathan uh, is the uh, co-founder of Roads and Kingdoms, which is a travel food kind of magazine site uh, that I really like. And uh, he shared the office with the Atavist and Longform. Back at our former home, the ground zero for the Longform podcast, 68J Street. He's a real friend of the podcast. Real friend of the longtime supporter. I would call Roads and Kingdoms an empire more I, than a magazine. He's got TV going on. Audio. I, I think about them a lot because they had a launch party and they had all kinds of good like swag at the launch party, including this extremely high end like egg frying pan. It's like a $200 pan. And I make my breakfast every morning on it. And I think about Roads and Kingdoms. <laughs> the case for swag. Also, if you can't see it, but I'm doing the tossing the egg motion here. I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't look like that. <laughs> um, uh, so got to talk to Nathan. I think like travel reporting is a really interesting uh, field. Like 
I remember like when I started like uh, reading my dad's books, he had a bunch of um, Pico Iyer books that were really influential on me. And it's uh, something that's really changed in the internet era with like people like influence blogging, traveling and kind of like monetizing their travel writing. So it's an interesting time to be um, running it. And I also think it's interesting to talk to someone who's really running a, a pretty um, independent site and, and starting something like this in, in a climate that's not always friendly to that kind of thing and going for quality going for quality not volume also exciting i feel like nathan we should just acknowledge he's the first guest who's ever um given us a rent check that is true <laughs> i've also given nathan a rent check so <laughs> the rent checks have gone all all kinds of directions on this episode if what's overdue in your mind is not a rent check but a newsletter better get mailchimp open um i run the mail the mailchimp uh, newsletter for my other show coin talk which is just roaring up the charts. Bitcoin nerds, take note. Uh, we're just setting up a newsletter for that. Of course, I went with the trusty, reliable service that has always been with the long-form podcast, MailChimp. Thanks to them, they make this show possible. And now here's Aaron with Nathan Thornburg. Welcome, Nathan Thornburg. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nathan, you are the uh, co-founder and editor-in-chief, co-editor-in-chief? Yeah, I like to share titles. Share. Co- co- everything that comes after, put a co before yeah, it. That's right. But you are the American face of Roads and Kingdoms. When you meet someone on an airplane, how do you describe what Roads and Kingdoms is? Roads and Kingdoms is a media company that lives somewhere near the intersection of food, travel, and politics. You would have been a magazine in previous generations, but you are now the amorphous media company. I, you know, I used to try to bullshit and be like, yeah, we're a magazine near the intersection of food, travel, and politics. People are like, oh, great. Like, do you have a copy? And I'm like, no, no, not that kind <laughs> of magazine. We're a daily digital magazine. And then you realize that we haven't invented the words or at least not the associations uh, yet to describe magazine people who came from magazine companies doing magazine things without a magazine. And I'm so, actually, I didn't realize that politics was part of that mix. Generally, when I like, if you, uh, for those who haven't gone on the site, I recommend you go on it. It's massively award-winning, won the uh, James Beard Publication of the Year, uh, won a Travel Writers Association, no? Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We just got the silver award for uh, publication of the year from the SATW, which is super cool, except that we won gold like two years ago. Oh, and so now we're all a, just thinking you've been like... demoted. Well, you're pre- <laughs> you've won gold. Who won gold this year? BBC Travel. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. Come on. I know. Come on, guys. No, they're they're amazing. So from my perspective, like a, a typical Roads and Kingdom story um, takes the form of a dispatch from somewhere in the world about something that's happening there, something locally, often food-related, but not all food-related. But it's a kind of writing that I, like, really love. Like, I've always been, like, a super big travel reader. My dad had a bunch of um, Pico Iyer mm-hmm. books when I was a kid that the I Godfather. read. Um, but there isn't actually, like, that much travel writing around anymore, it strikes me. Yeah, well, I think I think if there's anything that says they're just food writing or they're just travel writing, generally to me that doesn't like 
spark a lot of appetite yeah. because when I say politics is part of that mix, like we're trying to break down a lot of those boundaries between like what's on the plate and what's off, what's a yeah. travel experience and what's just you like doing old school journalism. Um, and I want to kind of bring the best of all of those different uh, ethics into each story and, and really into the travel experience. Like ultimately people want to go and they want to know shit in a way that they didn't really care to know, I think, in the past when, when thinking about an ideal kind of way of seeing the world. Our, our survival in this very uh, shitty decade uh, for journalism <laughs> is a testament to something like that. Uh, there is some appetite for it. Yeah, it's um, it all seems like it's united by a sense of um, experiential writing. Like if I were to describe like the set of stories you have up at a given time, it's almost like you uh, have a like massive network of freelancers all over the world and they're kind of sending you in what they're finding. And these aren't necessarily travel stories in the sense of like 36 hours in Maui. Um, I just just before you came in, was reading a feature about fishermen along the Sri Lankan uh, Indian border and murders that have happened there. And there is like a food angle. It is like how the like seafood um, gets to the world, but it's also about like a very tiny, very specific place. What led you to start Rosen King? How, how old? Are, how many years in are we now? We launched in March of 2012, so we're coming up on five and a half years. We're about to go to kindergarten. What what was age. the climate and the inspiration to start a online travel and food publication in 2012? Well, as a lot of things having to do with Roads and Kingdoms, it really started as a relationship. I met my co-founder, shares that title with me, named Matt Goulding. I met him in Mexico City in like 2009 when I was on assignment for Time Magazine. And I had been thinking about ways to try to get out of the Time Magazine uh, business. What, um, were you, what were you doing for Time Magazine at the time? So I worked for Time almost for a decade, and I had almost every job possible. I started as a stringer in Seattle, just kind of lowest person on the totem pole. Took four years to get a byline. You know, this is the old magazine days where if you were junior, they had a dark hole for you to just kind of what were you doing in the four years where you didn't achieve a single byline? You probably have. You probably <laughs> give interns a byline in the first day they work at Rising Kingdoms. Uh, that is absolutely right, and, and and even at time now, you yeah. know, if you're an intern, they're going to throw you in the in the bullpen and make you churn out like twenty like web stories, and you're going to write things that will live on forever under your name. So in some ways, like I was grateful for the system. I was a stringer, so I would file to uh, writers who would then write you know, the kind of omnibus time story, you know, if it was like a terror story, like I would do some interviews or I'd find, you know, uh, little bits of color from Seattle, but they'd match it with different pieces from all around the world. And they still had that bifurcated system where the people who did the reporting were not the writers. So they had writers like capital W. What was uh, the, what was the experience of stringing for four years being a support without ever writing a single thing yourself? Like, Oh, it was excruciating. I mean, on some level, it was terrible because I had wanted to write and everybody wants to see yeah. a byline. But it also was a great laboratory for me to learn how to report, yeah. uh, get out of my own head, not be an asshole. Or if I was going to be an asshole or like have dumb ideas or something, I could do them in the, the warm comfort of my anonymity. You know? Did you get feedback from the writers that you were supplying where they're like, hey, uh, that is not how I want you to do that? Yeah, yeah, definitely from time to time. Although after a while, you know, I, I uh, 
the key to success at Time Magazine is always a, a form of mimicry. And after a while, I got the format, essentially. Like, I could do that, like, two-paragraph lead, you know, setting up either a two, three, four, or five-page story. You know, you yep. just start to get... It is a very narrow skill set, but you start to get that down. So as a reporter, you would actually write fake articles, just amazing uh, to think now, but you would do your best impression of you if you were a guy who got to write for Time Magazine, and then they would gut the piece and like take a paragraph here or there, uh, maybe a, a choice phrase, definitely a quote, and then put that in their actual legit time piece. Um, so it was challenging, but the thing that kept me there uh, the whole time was the sense of Time Magazine as a global publication, which it still was, even this was like the early aughts, right? So Time Magazine still had all this overseas muscle. And just when I was thinking about quitting every time I would get a visit from Terry McCarthy, who would come from LA, he was my bureau chief based down there, he'd buy me a bottle of wine and tell me a story about meeting the president of the Philippines and then flying off to Indonesia to cover some unrest. And those like, there was enough romance in that to think like someday I'm going to get there. And finally, I'd, I'd been a musician in Seattle, uh, was what I was doing before I started stringing. And just bit by bit, the stringing just took over. And I really started to set my sights on on being a, basically a foreign correspondent. What did being a foreign correspondent mean to you at that point? Well, I, I think they were in a state of transition. I mean, I, that's like calling a... A, a drawn out death a transition <laughs> like they were on their own journey to the next life uh, but they basically their style of foreign correspondence used to be almost like a wire style like in the sense that they knew everything and they would send these communiques back right. to the news desk no matter what was happening and even if very little of it ended up in the magazine they had a robust news desk staff they had correspondence all over the you know it was still in that hangover from a period when the second most important American behind the ambassador in a foreign capital would have been the Time Magazine bureau chief. You know, so that sense of, you know, staying connected to power in all of these places was very much the model and very much becoming rapidly useless yeah. uh, and irrelevant as the business changed in particular. So were you I mean, were you aware of that in real time? Like, at what point did you start going, well, I uh the job I'm shooting for is also shooting itself. Yeah, I mean, it happened pretty quickly. I remember in 2003, I was still out in Seattle. I hadn't moved to the East Coast yet, and uh, I had um, put my hand up very vigorously, like the annoying kid in class, to go to Iraq. Uh, like, I wanted this more than anything. And, and at that point, I didn't have status. I mean, they wouldn't have sent me. Then within a year and a half, I had moved to New York, gotten a job with the New York Bureau. I was a, started doing a correspondent work. And then at some point, they asked me if I wanted to go to Iraq. And already it was clear within the magazine that if I went to Iraq, I might not have a job waiting for me when I came back. That like already that influence was waning. And the, you know, people like Jay Carney, like an Obama press secretary who had gone to Moscow as part of this route to power, you know, that everybody used to take in like old line publications, that was no longer, that was actually a route to maybe joblessness, you know? Yeah. So that was the first sign. I, now I, I, I had an amazing time at, at the magazine. At the end of the day, like I got to become an editor on all these different sections. I was a politics editor for six months, which was nuts, especially at that age. And I just got to learn a ton. So I, I had a very fortunate experience, but it, it's also true that by the time 
2008, 2009 rolled around, I was helping trying to recruit the freelancers who would replace the bureau chiefs when we were shutting bureaus down. And all of a sudden, a lot of the rationale, the romance about old line magazining, like Time magazine, that was the thing that had drawn me there. And all of a sudden, like, I'm part of the destruction of that, like the, the dismantling of that overseas system. So that really, that cemented an idea in my head that like, if this kind of reporting, if a kind of global view of the world is going to continue and be a part of my life, it's not going to be a Time magazine. Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a little more info about our sponsor, Mubi. Uh, if you've sat down and tried to watch a movie recently, I like to do it on the Apple TV, uh, you, you get met with a million different options. They're algorithmically generated, and somehow you still can't find anything to watch. Uh, with Mubi, they curate all of the movies that are there. Uh, each day, they introduce a handpicked gem, and you have one month to watch it. Timeless classics, thought-provoking documentaries. I'll just like a couple things I've w watched recently. Um, the Chaser, a Korean noir film, Rebels of the Neon God. I rewatched Living in Oblivion, a movie I have not seen since I was a video store clerk briefly in the early aughts. Anyway, it's all really surprising and really enjoyable stuff. Uh, you can delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Movie's Notebook. And best of all, you can never, ever have a fight again about what you're going to watch tonight so try movie free for 30 days at mubi.com slash long form that's mubi.com slash long form i really uh, believe in what they're doing so i hope you give them a chance to uh, check it out and uh, it supports the show uh, here i am back with nathan thornberg <laughs> Having seen what could happen to an institution the size of Time Magazine in such a, a short period, did that give you any pause about becoming the owner proprietor of a publication? <laughs> uh, it gave me pause, and it, frankly, I probably still have this about about taking you know big bets. Yeah, in a sense, and I, I, I guess that sounds that sounds a little crazy because on some level this is my one life, my one career, and I'm yeah. definitely betting it on on this thing. But just in the sense that, like, we saw time do things like acquisitions that you know just were weird and didn't work out, and like knowing that the pace of change is always just a little bit faster than like an ink-stained wretch is going to be able to grab onto made me feel like you know let's like do something start to do it well figure out that next thing and just kind of move move through the stations of the cross in a, in a more deliberate way um so there is a sense of like yeah that this can all disappear and we've seen it i mean you, i don't have to go back into my memory bank for time magazine you look at I look at Lucky Peach, you yep. know, people who do amazing work, uh, who I respect and created a, a really interesting and important uh, publication. And uh, it doesn't matter why it fails, but yeah. failures out there hunting all of us. I don't know the specifics of, of the Lucky Peach thing, but the impression I got, or at least the way it sort of came across in the messaging was like, not so much like, oh God, like Lucky Peach is totally um, not viable as a magazine, but while inventing this magazine, we discovered a lucrative 
other business, um, which is Lucky Peach, and these people have gone on to lucrative things. The magazine itself is an albatross uh, trailing behind these uh, other kinds of ventures, which rapidly can happen when you're in a place like food uh, or travel, where there there is this like other circling money and live events and all of these other things. But as I'm sure you can tell me, uh, the publishing, the daily, weekly, monthly publishing uh, is a lot more work than pulling off um, some live pop up events. Absolutely. Like there's you have to remain committed to the, you know, the kind of irrational act of producing journalism uh, for an uncaring world. <laughs> you know, like that's got to be you have to want to do that so bad that, that you will never not be doing that. You know, there's there's so many ways to die in this business, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm uh, well, let's um, presenting a let, really uplifting yeah, message here. Uh, but um, let's uh, take it back to uh, <laughs> when you were uh, naive enough to do this the, uh, in the first place. So you met Matt sort of at the um, closer to the tail end of your time at Time. Yeah, I mean, I'd actually been reporting in Cuba for the magazine. I got arrested because I came on a tourist visa as a journalist, which it was stressful. I used to live in Cuba. I used to play music there before I got into journalism. And like the guys who detained me like had dossiers on all my former bandmates and stuff and were kind of threatening them with, you know, kind of vague harm like confiscation of computers or denial of visas if I had somehow did them wrong in the reporting that I was doing on Cuba. It was like emotionally, uh, professionally very stressful. And I actually, that was right before I went to Mexico City. And when you're out in Cuba, you're kind of out, like there's no appeal process. You're you're out. No, yeah. And like we were fortunate to have people like, I don't know, Dali Mascareñas, who's close to Raul and like, you know, working for time. Like we had a system, an alarm system that could be set off. And listen, I had lived in Cuba long enough to know that this wasn't North Korea. Like the worst thing they were going to do to me was put me on a plane home but this stuff about my friends and like the people I knew and consequences for them was you know but that's textbook totalitarian regime is to use relationships as a lever anyway I was sick of that and I also knew that you know all the jeopardy I'd put these people I love in was in service of a piece that frankly was probably going to be pretty short like not really affect the culture. You know, I'd have some fights with the managing editor about how it should read and and things. I was starting to like be unruly within the system. And I think it just all was this stew where when I met Matt and we spent one night in Mexico City at this smoked goat place called El Arroyo outside of the city. And we just spent the whole night just absolutely understanding each other a, a thousand percent. He wanted to be doing less food. He was like the food editor at Men's Health then. I wanted to find ways to like cover the world that weren't dry and you know forgettable and that was it I mean almost eight years ago we had that conversation and we are doing the thing that we sketched out that night so you're you're based in New York Uh, Matt Goulding is based in Barcelona He's based in Barcelona what's it like trying to get a project off the ground i think your web developer lives somewhere else entirely yeah so our third... i should know i should note for full disclosure that uh in the old space where this podcast used to tape nathan and rosen kingdoms were renting some desks they are now the overlords of that space. <laughs> uh, we, have, we have a new studio here close by, uh, but if it ever seems strange that I'm so intimately familiar <laughs> with the workings of Nathan's business, and, and, I, and I admit, actually, I always was fascinated 
by watching the project work and grow. And I often was like, how the fuck does that work? And I never really asked you. So now I'm now I'm getting my chance. So what was it like trying to get a project of this scale off the ground with people who don't get to see each other face to face much? Uh, yeah, you saw me throwing dishes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wrecking off the most furniture. the most frustration I saw was generally when you were having to trying to have like a like 14 person Google like a hangout. Oh, yeah. And it was cutting in and out and everyone's pantomiming silently around a computer. Uh, that seemed that seemed tough. That is still uh, that is still one of one of our primary uh, problems. Yeah, I mean, so our third co-founder, as you pointed out, is this guy who's uh, an incredible graphic designer. And designed all of our digital stuff and named Doug Humanic. He lives in, he works in Silicon Valley, runs his own agency out there. So yeah, we have Barcelona and California and New York, uh, and like you know, Skype technology that seems to be getting worse as time goes on, not better. You know, thanks Microsoft. Uh, you know, so like. It is a challenge. What I know is that we were also just in different life stages. Like I had already had kids by that point. Like I was here in New York. Matt was leaving New York. He was definitely going to go and and be in Barcelona. He married a Catalan woman. Um, So it was just built into the DNA of the company. And what our challenge is consistently is to make that a virtue. And, you know, one of the things that makes Roads and Kingdoms so incomparable for me to my time experience is that we have to build our own culture and we think about it a lot. And we, we want this thing to be like a personal and emotional, you know, kind of experience, not just for Matt and I, but like for everybody. I mean, when we, when we had the chance, we took like 10 people down to Havana because we had an event that we were throwing with the Fabrica del Arte Cubano, which is great. But really more than that, I wanted to get everybody thinking about like producing city guides and like how we can start to take the R&K concept and like make it real. But like, I also want to have these kind of ridiculously insane bombastic offsites. Is that great business? Well, no, not at all. But it also, to me, this has to, you know, I wanted to replace what I had at time with something that felt more personal and, you know, like a calling. Because also what came up in the wake of the demise of the great Lafayette and, you know, publications was just this kind of soulless digital media that, you know, had like high turnover and, and low sense of mission and all of that. And, and we want to build something that feels uh, different than that. In the period between uh, that goat meal in Mexico City and the first time you posted a story to Roads and Kingdoms, like, I don't know, someone was talking about uh, Bitcoin uh, today and was like, oh, the hard part was getting from zero to $100 in the price. From there on, it's like easy. I would think <laughs> that the period where this project was the most likely to die was before you actually launched it. What do you think made it actually happen? What were the ingredients yeah. that were necessary to like that actually coming together versus like being like a beautiful night that everyone kind of forgot about? Right. I mean, more to the point, how many drunken conversations have I had in yeah. my life about like some big thing? That <laughs> yeah, was well, that's happen interesting. And... Like, was this the fr- was this your first like big project like this? Or I, did... I, no, I mean, like I was I was a horn player. Uh, you know, like I was a, I tried to be a professional musician for years. Like I'm familiar with like quixotic and like yeah. ultimately, I mean, I. <laughs> 
want to talk to me about failure? I'll tell you about failure. <laughs> I mean, I made like $8,000 in 1999, the whole year, like just playing like, you know, quarter gigs in Seattle. So like, I, I don't know, I have a high like um, dreaminess uh, yeah. about my, in my mental state that I think what made it happen, what pulled this to the starting line, which is uh, always a hard part of the route, was like just Matt and, and I like just together, we weren't going to let it fail and yeah. like and we put i mean really it's my wife had a job like for the first time because i had been following her around as she went through medical residency she finally got a job in medicine around the same time and i was like hey we have stability and like you know some income like i know what i can do with that like i can like burn it like i was lighting trash on fire and, <laughs> and you know do a media startup for a little while so without her support and matt's convivial refusal to let this thing just become another idea on the trash heap like it wouldn't have happened but the fact is that you know we were able to get it started and we started in a very low cost way that's the other thing we were a tumbler like that was our first posts yeah. matt and i flew to myanmar and i went and covered the war in the north where the catchings were kind of in this low simmering rebellion against the central government and he like ate his face off in yangon and like we use that as like a do these things live together on a page even if it's a tumbler well can these ideas coexist without being flip and can he and i stand to be around each other in these kind of environments and circumstances so we did that in five countries in the first year and it all kind of built that that sense of like yes this can work and then we spread it out and started to get more people involved and started to do hires and started to work on on the money side what what did working on the money side entail the same thing as kind of it does now which is just finding brands who are just at that right point where they they know they want to have some partner who can do something interesting they're they're not deluding themselves that they can make that content uh and we're just doing projects i think our first project was with breville which is an australian high-end kitchen appliance company and they gave us a budget to shoot video and and it wasn't a big budget but we did stuff that we were pretty psyched about and uh and it funded a lot of stories got us through that first year um, you know, because we weren't paying ourselves and we were being super lean. We were renting a, a chair or two uh, from you and Natavist, you know. So it, for us, it was a real slow, gradual entry into becoming what we are. But I never, I always saw it being what it is now, which is like, I want to have a company that has like, smart talented people who come to work and and like just get shit done and and we work together on stuff i'd never wanted to be like a itinerant um just kind of blogger what have you found like from that original premise about representing the world in a certain way through food and politics and um, the sense of place what of that has changed over time and what do you think is really important um about telling stories that way I think one of the things that we realize that we have an opportunity to do that actually works with the format and the, the, the context that we publish in is really first person. Like, and you know, that was part of the cultural battle at the time also is like, 
it's difficult to go from omniscient to, you know, like, let me tell you a story now. Yeah. Um, I just happen to think, and I, I mean, whatever, I'm not the only one, like the internet clearly shows that like that kind of personal connection is like table stakes now. Like that's, you know, people want to see that and they need to see that. Now, then it opens up a lot of interesting questions about, and kind of like some self-reflecting on, just how colonial this whole enterprise of foreign correspondence was. Like, who is that now that's narrating this story? And like, why are they doing it? And and I think that's kind of unleashed this whole very interesting chain for us of like, inevitably, when you start to go first person, you start to think about identity and you start to think about like, okay, well, how do we work now with people who are actually from the place? Maybe not the city, maybe not the country, but the region. It's like, that's not too much to ask. Like people, can actually start to talk for themselves about these stories and do journalism on their terms with their perspective. And and that's been an extreme pleasure and an extreme like opportunity for us to just like continually improve, but to do things that that are kind of different than the way they have been done. So it seems like there's two kinds of people who might end up writing a story for Roads and Kingdoms. One is the one you described, someone who is from a place um, or at least the general locality. And then there's also not your traditional foreign correspondent bureau, but the scattered backpackers of the world, the itinerant writers of the world, the Nathan Thornburgs of the world who oh, are boy. roaming around. Put that on my headstone. Trying to, <laughs> um, you know, trying to sell a story, trying to stay in a country for another month or two. I'm interested in, in both of those cases, how you find and recruit people um, to write for you. In the second case, if we're talking about like those kind of that young foreign correspondent yeah. core, like those networks are pretty strong and we've always done really well, I think, among journalists, like because also journalists recognize in these stories a lot of the kinds of stories that they'd like to tell. Yeah. And frankly, it's not on accident like every time i would go on assignment i got to see some incredible stuff when i was being flown around by time had big adventures always at the bar when i got back to new york i was talking about a very different kind of story than what got published and i think rose and kingdoms does a pretty good job of like presenting those stories the at the bar stories so journalists are down with this they i, I think we have you know we have a lot of feeling for that group I mean, someone like Mei Jong, who's a uh, Canadian journalist who's now, you know, she's basically one of the best writers, I think, uh, out of Kabul. We published her first story ever, but that's because she was like a young journalist who had seen, had been reading RK for a little while. And when she got to Kabul, she was, that was like her first pitch, knowing also that like we're here for that kind of person. Yeah. To like that real, like just starting out, but if they have a good idea, like, We'll put them on the page. It yeah, would... it, it almost seems like the counterweight to that, like it's got to have an eye, is like most of the eye travel food on the internet doesn't also have an editor attached yeah. to it. <laughs> so, how, like, how do your editors right. work with these people, particularly when you're like, okay, you've got a May yeah. John, yeah, May John, love the um, writing man. in Kabul. Yeah. Amazing opportunity, but has never published before. Is yeah. sort of uh, transitioning from a fan of Rose and Kingdoms to a contributor. Right, right. What kind of support does a writer like that need? Intensive old school support. And that's kind of, I, you know, I think that was one of the things that we brought to it. It wasn't just Matt and I who'd come from 
this the old school background, but these days, in the past two years, it's been Kara Parks who came uh, from foreign policy, and then also Modern Farmer, which is kind of the ideal like Roads and Kingdoms yeah. uh, resume. And she's a extremely pleasant person and a ruthless line editor. Like she just won't let shit fly, and that is so necessary and so rare and i mean listen our rates are not great like we max out at like a thousand dollars which you know try feeding someone besides yourself on that and these are for long you know intense pieces but that like feeling that someone is really gonna make this a better story and you're gonna have a very very the best possible version of this story under your name will come because rnk has this like old school retrograde casually brutal editing sensibility and i think that's that's a really cool thing for a writer who's just starting out thinking about it uh with the the tables turned for people who are listening who are aspiring writers um trying to get that first thing published i think like um travel is often like the first thing that people might try to publish it's like i took a little trip to vietnam i saw a few things and uh got a little essay about it uh what do you look for in writers what what tells you this is someone worth investing the editor's time in if they haven't previously published or they're not totally like ready? Yeah, I mean, it's the idea and the writing about the idea. I mean, that sounds obvious and and maybe it is, but like you know, just you can you can tell in reading yep. two paragraphs, uh, which is all we ever want to read <laughs> from someone who's sending a pitch. It just like what their fluency with the idea uh, is and their kind of style in in writing. And it's a balance, right? If it's a really great idea, we'll take something that seemed like a little choppy and they let a lazy word or two in. If the idea is like good, but not, you know, not killer, but the writing is really light and bright and lively, then that's a good sign too. Um, but some of it's hard to teach because the first thing is that somebody's got to read your publication. I mean, I'm sure every single guest you've had on this show has said something very similar, but it's just true. Like somebody's got to read R&K and then they can probably see there that the features at least are not going to be like, hey, I went to Patagonia with my girlfriend for a couple weeks. Here's what I learned. Like we really, we need people who have some kind of access to something that we didn't know before. How do you avoid, you, you uh, referred earlier to the colonial mindset, and there's an inherent dynamic about uh, an American online publication, or even, I guess, a dispersed internationally, pub, in a, but a primary uh, American readership publication uh, writing about somewhere in the world, um, particularly the third world. What What have you learned about that over time? How do you tell people what to avoid in their writing and, and what to emphasize in the kind of stories that you want to do? Well, I, I would say for most of the, the most egregious things that we get, and we have an award named after a frequent pitcher, which is uh, you know <laughs> an award for a, um, a guy who's like, and then the locals accepted me as their chief, you <laughs> yeah. know, like it's, it's the Rudyard Kipling award yeah. uh, for colonial pitching. Uh, I think, so listen, when a pitch comes in like that, we just kind of walk away. I'm, right. not, I'm not here to save anybody from their own well, stupidity. It seems but, like knowing that you want people to have that eye yeah. in the story, yeah, yeah. you're almost daring them to become the chief of the village. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of influences in the word cloud of a lot of young writers, whether it's Hemingway or, you know, like Rudyard Kipling or like that. That is the way that was the ideal for such a long time. And and I think increasingly that's changing, but still like we we recognize it when we see it. Trust is a huge part of saying yes or no to a piece. Like, do we trust that this person's not a total shitbag, yeah. uh, you know, and we'll just like, you know, have a good relationship. But you can read those things. I mean, we're not like we don't have a special skill it's just about like okay is this person listening to the people that they're going to be talking about in some way that feels like human I don't think it's that complicated but we do you know we are very careful to always be keeping that in mind and and listen I'm I am a white American man who used to be sent to like a parachute correspondent based in New York and would go to like you know you've got five days in Georgia or in the Republic of Georgia, like you have to figure out what's going on there and not screw it up while everybody's trying to influence you and tell you this and that and or whatever. And and it wasn't always like the best way to go. And so like I'm a, maybe an unlikely standard bearer for getting local voices, but I I believe it, you know, all the more because of my own experiences of how ineffective like emotionally and 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 socially it could be to be in that old model. I think you're the first person on the show who's copped to parachuting. I think you're the first <laughs> person who just self-identified as a parachutist. I I mean, it, listen, this like, is how it was. I'm not saying you're the only parachutist. No. I'm just saying you're the only person who's confessed parachuting. Yeah, I mean, I maybe I have the uh, the the advantage of now like, you know, definitely not having that as part of my my workflow, but a lot of what Roads and Kingdoms tries to do, I think is a reaction to the unease that I felt and some of this and like if you're talking about the developing world and and stories like just work a little harder to find people they're out there they want to they want to tell their stories so i just went to spain so i dude you didn't ask me i did i, I sent you an e- i sent you an email you did yeah what did i say you didn't respond oh i'm the worst <laughs> oh man i'm the well I'm but a, it was actually you know, it worked out because friend. you you um Birds of Pickle Kingdoms has already published a book on eating in Spain. So yes. I, I I did have you with me in Spain. Um, uh, man, so, okay. My so bad. in Spain, I was kind of like basically doing what you do when you want to go somewhere on the internet, like Googling like things to do in San Sebastian, you know? <laughs> um, and you would think that the internet would solve a lot of these problems and would also solve problems like, oh, well, I'm not just your general American tourist. Right. Like I have like this kind of a vibe and this kind of, these kinds of interests. And actually it's just more confusing than ever to yeah. try to find any information yeah. on the internet. How do you solve these questions in 2017? And how do you actually be a resource to people who, who aren't just sitting on Facebook at work looking for food porn but are actually like want to travel and see the world i mean unfortunately there's sort of sort of like a shell game that goes on particularly when it comes to travel and restaurant recommendations and service on the internet where you keep scratching and you go to these sites that look different that are differently skinned and you kind of start to realize that they're all working off the same they're information all just, they're all just trip advisor they're all clothes. i mean particularly in the app environment which is nuts you just so many apps you're like we have 1500 cities around the world and recommendations in everyone yeah. one 
totally impossible, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, uh, and the only way you could possibly do it is by scraping TripAdvisor or Yelp. Yes. And then you're left with this kind of miasma you're talking about, this utter confusion about what's recommended and what's trustworthy. We do two things. One is like we we start super local. So the guides that we have, we're doing Accra and Ghana, in part because we have an amazing editor who's British Ghanaian. She knows that city inside and out. That's going to be the best possible That's going to be your, your first guide is Accra. That's one of them playing the hits (laughs) i'm just like yeah we we have a mix we're doing tokyo no Uh, i mean in some ways uh, the accra ghana is the highest value like there's a lot of alternative guides to tokyo yes uh i don't know how many guides to accra there are or at least that i would find if i looked online i am super interested to see like what that balance is like how do we do when we when we we're also doing new orleans right because this is a a mind-blowingly great american city to visit now how do we compete there and like you know can we get our voice out there a cry i feel like we probably could but yeah what's the market for people who are going naturally to ghana not huge right so we have to figure out that balance but but definitely we want to have that sense of like these are people who are there and then people just like not settling for you know repackaging other ideas and so on and as long as we are on the ground and stay connected to what it's actually like and what's actually happening there and keep it updated i think this is going to be like editorially something that will be substantively different but you notice like every site from Vogue to Goop to Vice has like city guides that are really just, they're just phoning it in, you know? Yep. It's just a few listings. And like, we want to do something that kind of speaks more to the emotional and literary experience. That was a job I had, yeah. Yeah, I worked for a company called Unlike that was based out of Berlin and was trying to do like right when apps, right Uh, when the app store first came out. Yeah. They were like, I was just churning them out. Yeah. I wrote like, I think I was getting paid 20 bucks an entry. Yeah. And I would just like, sometimes my like rent would be due and I would just sit in front of a computer and think of everywhere I could think of in New York, like every location in New York <laughs> just that like, I could think of. As you're seeing outside the window of your t- subway. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, yeah. I think there, what, what other people will look at that like vast profusion of like kind of cloned information that exists yeah. in travel and, and be kind of overwhelmed by it. I continue to think that that's a huge opportunity for us because I'm not saying that we're doing like something that's so mind blowingly innovative, but just by taking care in what you do, I think you actually separate yourself quite a bit. How do people find you and how do people find roads and kingdoms? Because like, I think that there is this idea that, oh, food and travel are really pop. Someone was telling me that food and travel are like the two number two, number one and number two, like viral types in Facebook <laughs> or something, right? Like, yeah. Um, but they're when not they're talking t- about the way we do it. Yeah, yeah they're but. not. They're talking about like a um, like a video clip of like a chocolate factory, like the Kershey's Kisses coming down the assembly right. line. They're right. talking about very short content that you just randomly encounter. When you're doing things like a guide to Accra and yeah. Ghana or you're doing these features, they don't have that same virality. There does seem to be demand for food and travel writing, but when you're not working that Facebook loop, how do you stay visible to people who would be interested? I mean, it's an ongoing process. I think I I, I don't have any definitive answer because in the age of Facebook also 
by the way that answer is like constantly changing is it yep. video is it live is it you know we by necessity have happened on a pretty nice strategy of ignoring most of that stuff so then we also aren't like feeling super burned when yep. they you know decide to change their entire algorithm i would say that you know, for us, it's also about knowing who we are and what we need for an audience. Like, we want to connect very deeply with the right number of people. Like, I just could not want less to do, like, tasty viral recipe, you know, where you're smothering chicken and mayonnaise. And, like, it's not something you can actually cook, but it's something you can look at for, like, 3.1 seconds on Facebook. And, and you know, I just, like let other people do that there's plenty of people who are doing that like this is enough of a calling for us that we're like we're happy to do some like artisanal stuff that like is finding some audience i st i mean there's a there's a much larger audience out there that we hope to meet someday that would get what we do and understand it but that's our process of getting there but even that ceiling that top number is not going to be buzzfeed like you know that's not something that we aspire to how does it feel having done this for five, five and a half years and be looking at the next five years? You know, when people start these projects, I don't know who started Time Magazine, but I, I guess, I'm guessing yes. that, right, that's right. I'm guessing they didn't think about how Time Magazine was going to end right. when they started it. <laughs> and um, the human lifespan is finite and careers are 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, what's it like, like, putting a bunch of yourself into something like this, but then being expected to keep doing it forever if you want it to, to survive. I'm assuming that you couldn't just walk away from Roads and Kingdoms and hire someone to do your job. No? Okay, I, yeah, you I don't know. Oh, I you like, plan to do that? I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I try to make myself editorially uh, irrelevant uh, <laughs> more and more. I mean, frankly, because yeah. there are, like, you know, it's not alchemy. Like, there's very, very talented writers and editors yeah. out there who get, I think, what we're doing. Now, I part of the problem with this company is that, you know, I think Matt and I both made a company that is exactly what I want to do for, yeah. like where else would I go like I love this shit like these particular things I love the people I work with all this stuff so like yeah is there a second act outside of Roads and Kingdoms that's part of the problem is like if this didn't work for some reason or if I you know felt the need or was compelled to go like it would be hard to be uh, to imagine a, a job that would kind of fit me and my interests more closely. So that's great while it lasts. Uh, but yeah, I could I could imagine being really uh, I, I would be real sad uh, if you know if I had to go back to a newsroom. And there's some great newsrooms out there. Obviously, like it just isn't nearly what this is and uh, what this can be for the people who work here. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, Nathan Thornburg. Thank you, Aaron Lammer. It's a pleasure. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thank you very much to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Angela Velez. Uh, thanks to Nathan Thornburg for coming on. And I actually wanted to say that uh, after we taped this, um, Roads and Kingdoms premiered their new podcast. It's called The Trip. 
Uh, it's produced in partnership with Anthony Bourdain. Uh, they've got Beats by Dan the Automator on it. Uh, Nathan hosts it. It's different. Uh, check-ins um, behind the scenes on reporting trips all over the world. The first episode is up. It's called The Root of All Things. So search for it in iTunes or Stitcher, or you can just find it right at roadsandkingdoms.com. Thanks to all of our sponsors today. Of course, MailChimp, uh, the new podcast, Rise and Grind, and also Mubi. You can find Mubi at mubimubi.com slash longform. It's a great way to get outside of the algorithm and start finding the independent world uh, documentary gems that you have been missing out on. I highly recommend you check them out. I watch there all the time. It's uh, my favorite place to find uh, movies to watch when I am sitting around with this little baby, which is what I'm doing right now. Okay, I'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.